Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow patriots and American taxpayers to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is Daniel Horowitz back in the house on Tuesday, February 25th. I'm sorry for yesterday's show coming out a little late, but we will make sure today's show is out on time because I know you guys really rely on this show to get the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, drop us a five-star comment as always, and you could email me at dharowitz at blazemedia.com. There is certainly a lot going on. You know, these are some of the days, the last couple of days. It's not like there's one big story, but there's a lot of little stories. And as always, there are so many issues that relate to the safety of our communities the security, the prosperity of our lives, for which there is both an opportunity and an imperative to have political leaders that will offer a modicum of leadership. And yet, time after time, we see that the people that claim to be providing that leadership, that alternative to the broken political class, are part of it. You know, there's no greater opportunity than what the Democrats are providing us with this, the pretty much this this year, this election cycle, and who knows what's going to happen after that. With the likely nomination of Bernie Sanders, we have the opportunity to come up with an alternative, a bold contrast to both his socialism and his anarchism. But instead, what I find Republicans doing is almost trying to outleft Bernie on, on things. And I'm really starting to wonder, is this election, rather than banging away on criminals and criminal aliens and, gosh, 21-year-old MS-13 crazy illegal alien El Salvadorans in our schools with 12- and 13-year-old girls, it's a whole other story we have today we might get to. Our borders, now we see with the coronavirus that we really failed to stop travel when we should have. We even have Chinese coming to our land borders too, and they're being released. So many stories for which there's a need for leadership. And yet, we're lacking it. We're lacking it. A lot of people noticed yesterday the story out of Virginia where... It was announced that Lee Malvo, the D.C. sniper who's accused of killing 10 people, is convicted, killing 10 people, one of the most notorious mass murderers in recent history. He is going to be eligible for parole come 2024 because Virginia just passed a law abolishing life in prison without parole, even for juvenile mass murderers. Now. We, we talked about this last week. The media is finally catching up to it this week. But as I mentioned at the time, seven out of the 19 Republican senators in Richmond supported it. And President Trump and the Trump administration, rather than using this as an opportunity to pin the tail on the donkey and say, look at what they're doing, we're going to go in the opposite direction, they're trying to outbid them. You, know, you had over the weekend, Trump had some sort of a conference where um conference of hope for prisoners it was like 
Hey, Jared's the father of criminal justice reform. He really is. He works so hard. And he talked about, um, oh, some very conservative Republicans joined along with this. That was a good sign. Very bipartisan. It was a terrific thing. Talking about the jailbreak bill. By enacting criminal justice reform, we're sending a powerful message to prisoners who have reformed their lives. When you return to society, we are not going to leave you behind. Well, <coughs> what about sending a powerful message to the millions of victims that don't see justice, that maybe society won't leave them behind? <laughs> what about those people? What about all of the people that are unreformed, violent repeat offenders that get a slap on the wrist? Why is there no focus from this administration on them? Where is this coming from? Again, this is unanimous in the administration. Tim Scott. He said uh, to Neil Cavuto a couple days ago, Trump will see a 50% increase in African-American support. And then it will be game over for the Democrats. Think about top-tier Democrat candidates that talk about harassing African-American males through stop and frisk. Compare that against President Trump's criminal justice reform packages that are making the justice system more fair to African-Americans disproportionately than it has been in a long time. I mean, is this really the thing? Are, are, are we going to outleft the Democrat candidates on this? We're going to take the most radical Democrat candidates in the history of the United States, and we're going to try to outleft them on crime? And what freaking nerve? Many of you noticed that yesterday I have a column out about Sandra Wilson. She happens to be black. Well, she was. She's dead now. Now, I only mention race because they're making this all about race. To us, it makes no difference. She was a library security guard beloved by the neighborhood in Spring Valley, New York. And one day, this guy, uh, Blanchard Glaudine, last week, allegedly barged in and stabbed her with a knife. Repeatedly. Stabbed her to death. You could look up Sandra Wilson's GoFundMe page to pay for her funeral expenses. I don't know the family situation there. But very, very sad. But it turned out that this man was in a hospital. And he went to a woman in the hospital two months ago in November. November 9th. Held her down by the throat. Told her to shut up and do not scream. Pull your pants down. He allegedly choked and scratched the victim. He, he was apprehended. So he luckily he didn't. It was wound up being attempted rape. Now, what type of person tries to hold down a woman in a hospital bed and rape her? Well, you'd think kind of the type of person that would murder as well. He was held on $100,000 bail, but he was let out in the last week of December, most likely because of the chaos of enactment of the jailbreak law. He missed three court dates in January. Never apprehended. Making Sandra's murder 100%. Preventable. What about appealing to those African-Americans? Again, I mean, this is mentally ill. There are more black law-abiding citizens than criminals. Why are you pandering to the criminals and perpetuating the lie that it disproportionately 
um, incarcerates them. No, it doesn't. Their rate of their share of incarceration is 32%. Their share of the violent crime arrest is 37.5%. I, I'm not sure. I, I mean, what, what do you want me to do? Join the, the cheerleading with everyone? Oh, look at Bernie. Look at Bernie. I know. Look at Bernie. You're right. So why are we trying to outleft him? Drives me insane. But that's the thing. I'm telling you guys, the South Carolina senator, someone with a lot of knowledge, told me this. A lot of knowledge in the White House. The two South Carolina senators are steering the agenda. Lindsey Gramesty and Tim Scott. Two progressives. Tim Scott is like Al Sharpton. I mean, I don't, I don't know what's what his deal is. And it's on and on. It's issue after issue after issue after issue. Mick Mulvaney. This is from the Washington Examiner over the weekend. I disagree with Trump every single day. Now, he's trying to put a positive spin on it. And basically, he was um, trying to show how, you know, Trump uh, welcomes all different voices. It's not an echo chamber. But that's exactly the point. Everyone in the White House disagrees with his campaign message. So what exactly did we elect? What exactly did we elect? Inquiring minds would like to know. DHS is planning to raise the H to be seasonal worker visa cap by 45,000 this coming year. Even a bigger increase than the previous years. More low-skilled third-worlders coming in than under Obama. Michelle Hackman, who's the immigration reporter for the Wall Street Journal, reports right now as, we're, as I'm recording, there's a uh, oversight hearing with or a budget hearing with Chad Wolf, the acting DHS secretary, who himself was a visa lobbyist, by the way, and became DHS secretary. And Senator James Lankford, Republican of Oklahoma, of all states, told him, quote, at the hearing, according to Michelle Hackman, you have permission to do that, meaning increase the caps, and you could go even higher than that. Which is true, the omnibus did authorize it. I mean, no one, this is the thing. Trump voters don't even know about this. And this is what I'm trying to get out to people and spread the word. I know some of you have expressed the desire to start a Facebook page just, just to network and try to get the word out. Like, hey, we're getting screwed. The opposite of what you think the, the, the president needs to hear from us. Again, you could email me dharowitz at blazemedia.com. I'm going to try to create a group of, of some people maybe to get together, put you on an email chain and, and get this off the ground. I'm not good at Facebook. But this is the thing. It's like one thing after another. The hits keep coming. So, uh, you know, more, they're obviously pushing for more high-skilled visas as well, which are entry-level white-collar jobs. Trump was in India yesterday, the big speech. He had a great opportunity to sit down with the Indian prime minister and say, look, you know, it's not good for your country to be a brain drain for everyone to be exiting from there. Let's work on how to strengthen your country. Um, and, you know, we're going to work on our labor force as well. But no, I mean, every single person, this was a, a Breitbart article of how literally every single person in this administration is pushing for more visas. More and more and more and more. 
And then, then we got something else here. It gets even worse than that. So, um, and I'm trying to find the article I remember was written by uh, Daniel Greenfield at Front Page Mag. How the interpreter scam brought 75,000 Iraqis and Afghan, Afghans to America. 75,000. So you basically found the latest battle over special immigrant visas pitted Stephen Miller, President Trump's senior advisor, against the Pentagon. The military brass was lobbying for 6,000 special immigrant visas for Iraqis who worked for American forces in the country. These visas were once again billed as helping interpreters. That's a lot of interpreters considering that there were only 5,200 American troops in Iraq. Great reporting by, by uh, Greenfield here. In one decade, the U.S. has handed out 75,250 of these visas to Iraqi and Afghan employees. By the way, by the way, they've increased. The ones from Afghanistan has, have increased under Trump, and the Pentagon wants to increase more Iraqi ones, evidently even more than the number of interpreters that are there. And this is the scam. So now we have Pashto speakers in our, in our schools. Add that to the 70 languages sp spoken in any given school district. 2017, the 4677 Iraqi and Afghan employees brought 13,713 dependents with them. So now we get to our entire families. Oh, don't worry, they're vetted. Fight them there where we don't need to fight them so we can bring them here so they could screw us over. Man. So that, that's a big joke. So, so Trump has slashed conventional refugees, but he's brought in record numbers of Afghani SIVs, which aren't subject to the refugee caps, and record numbers of H2s, and they want to bring in more H1s and OPTs and all this stuff. It's like, this is the problem I'm having. I, I want to talk about good news, but I also don't want to lie to you. And, you know, that how with one hand, they have a superficial good thing, but then a more enduring bad thing that countermands it. So, like, there was good news. Finally, the Supreme Court allowed us to implement the public charge thing. And that, that, that's one thing that I think could be significant, significant gain. It is very watered down, but it's something. They're still eligible for a lot of programs, but not for others. But how much do you want to bet that the minute they start implementing it, when you start having individual cases, they're going to threaten further lawsuits, and that's going to dissuade them from really enforcing it? Well, Daniel, didn't we just win in the courts? Well, the same way we just won with the so-called travel ban, and yet they come back again because the lower courts could do what they want as long as it's more progressive than precedent, as I wrote about in my column yesterday and on our show on Friday. So that's how we basically just neutered it. So I, I can't praise something that's just not true. So... I mean, at what point on immigration are we are, are we trying to get to the left of Bernie? I mean, at least under Bernie, we won't have the SIVs because he doesn't want to be in Afghanistan for his purposes. 
Heck, even Dick Durbin wrote a letter to the administration saying, chill it out a little bit on the H2 visas. But it's nothing. And again, there's so many opportunities we could slam Bernie for aggressiveness of his policies. But yet, the administration is still continuing them. I want to read to you a story that just came out. Montgomery County cops arrest Montgomery County public school students for allegedly raping 11-year-old girls off campus. Two Montgomery County public, student, public school students ages 2019 were recently arrested at their respective high schools on alleged on allegations they raped different 11-year-old girls at apartments located off campus. Jonathan Correa's Salamanca, 20, and Ivan Reyes-Lopez, 19, are each charged with second-degree rape. It's always second-degree. Correa Salamanca has additional accounts of sexual abuse of a minor and third-degree sexual offense. According to law enforcement sources, police arrested Correa Salamanca, who, by the way, um, I confirmed with ICE, is an illegal alien from El Salvador. There's an ICE detainer on him. The other guy came from Honduras a few years ago. There's no detainer on him, but I bet you anything he came illegally too, but finagled himself into some sort of status or there's some sort of pending application that they can't put an ICE detainer on. He was enrolled as a student, 20 years old, had access to 11-year-olds in junior high. And I'm not going to read it. It's really um, graphic. But this is WJLA in uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, ABC's Channel 7. And they note that basically the state mandates that all residents between the ages of 5 and 20 are entitled to free public school education. And I guess that includes if you're turning 21 in the year that in the acad academic year, uh, you start out as uh, 20 years old. They try to ask. Um, the Maryland uh, public school system, they put in a press inquiry as to how many um, how many 20-year-olds are, or how many 19 and 20-year-olds are in the school, and they basically bristled and said, we're not answering it. There's no data suggesting that being in a high, as a high school student, 19, 20, or 21, makes a person more or less likely to commit a crime. Any suggestion otherwise is wrong in trying to make a connection there. The students enrolled in our district is wrong. So, folks, we are bringing in Salvadorans in large numbers. I guarantee you, I don't have it confirmed, but I guarantee you he was resettled as a UAC into our schools. 21-year-old Salvadoran illegal alien boys with 11-year-old girls. And, folks, you could kick, you could scream, you could call me names. But even left-wing NGOs, when they want more funding to deal with the social problems in their home countries, talk about this. Um, Girls Not Brides, you could look it up. Girls Not Brides, look up their stuff on Central America on El Salvador. They'll tell you this is very common. They'll have 21-year-olds have relations or marriage with 11, 12, 13-year-old girls. That's just what they do. That's why you see a ton of this in Maryland. And yet, there's no effort to clamp down on this. This is bringing in the biggest batch of public charge of MS-13 gang members, of murderers, of child rapists, destroying our schools, flooding our schools with adults, 
and they still have not fixed this UAC loophole, which is all administrative. They are self-trafficked. But at least if you think you need to fix it statutorily, then fix it. But no, there's no sense of urgency to deal with the forgotten Americans that have their kids stuck in school with, with, with these adults. Adult illegal aliens. There's no effort to deal with this. The clamor, the alacrity, the emergency, the priorities. More low-skilled visas, more white-collar visas. Amnesty for DACA, amnesty for farm workers, TPS. More special immigrant visas the Pentagon's pushing. I mean, dude, I... I are, are, really, are, are we going to run to the left of Bernie Sanders? I mean, is that the goal? And then you move on to economics. Economics. Some of you might have noted, noticed that the last couple months, it, took even, it, it took, even took me by surprise. There's this um, effort on the part of House Republicans, including Speaker McCarthy, I mean, minority, minority leader McCarthy, who will be the speaker if he is, gets the majority back. This is what's waiting for us at the light at the end of the tunnel after an auspicious election. They're pushing the global warming agenda, which they, of course, call climate change. They insidiously fall into the trap of, of allowing Democrats to change the language you know, after they frantically said for 30 years global warming, and then they suddenly say climate change, and Republicans are like, climate change, climate change. This was from last month, but I, I never talked about it. House Republicans, uh, political House Republicans caught between Trump and young voters on climate change. And they talk about um, just this growing proposal to wean the U.S., the Jewish, the GOP proposals don't aim to begin to wean the U.S. off fossil fuels. Um, but they have other stuff. They want to be more moderate. And um, they mentioned uh, emerging a competing Green New Deal. Minority leader Kevin McCarthy is expected to lean on a Republican standbys chiefly planting more trees, curbing plastic waste, and boosting innovation and exporting cleaner U.S.-made technology to help other countries address their share of the global problem. See, this all sounds nice, but what it is is it accepts the, the Democrat premise, albeit with less of a, um, less of a principled passion that the Democrats would have. You look stupid. You look like a, a shyster. You look like a used car salesman. You elevate their issue. And then this sounds nice, but what it always is, is one form of subsidies, market distortions, and mandates. Might be less than what the Democrats are doing, but it's the same thing. They list all these clowns pushing this stuff. I, I, I don't know what to tell you guys. I don't know what to tell you guys, but th this this is happening. This is a serious, serious problem. Republicans have an opportunity to stand before the American people 
and talk about bread and butter economic issues that they understand. What I would do is I would take a basket of goods and services, appliances, everyday things that Americans buy and say these idiots like Bernie Sanders want to bring us back to the 1800s. They give us products that don't work, that are more costly. America, see, everyone's like, oh, young people are bought into global warming. But you know what? Young people are also bought into hedonism. They love their abundance. They love their stuff that they can go on Amazon and get the best stuff for the cheapest price. You make it about that. That's what you do. You have a competing alternative agenda, not alternative meaning like it's a paler pastel version of what the left is doing. It comes from a totally different goal and a totally different premise. How hard is it to draw a bold contrast from Bernie Sanders? Evidently, it's pretty hard. I'm just warning you guys. Look, I don't want Democrats to win. I don't want Bernie to win. I want Trump to get reelected. But I want Trump to get reelected on his message that he campaigned on and to govern on that message. But if we don't deal with the problematic Republicans in Congress and the problematic people that are in the agencies and departments and, yes, in the White House, what sort of second term are we going to have? It could be an utter disaster. We could have Republicans pushing all this stuff under our banner, which is even worse. Why not focus on the sanctuary cities? Focus on the UACs. Focus on this stuff. Focus on better products. How, how to make food and fuel and education cheaper and break the cartels that are, that are inflating the price of this stuff. Do what Ron DeSantis does. There's just no vision. Instead, like Mike Lee was out there yesterday on Twitter, uh, the conservative vision of paid family leave. I mean, geez, like, like, I mean, and this is what it is. The conservative criminal justice reform, the conservative immigration reform, the conservative environmental fascism, the conservative entitlements. I mean, when does this end? Why am I the only one talking about this? The conservative version of judicial supremacism. That's another thing I want to get to. You know what? Actually, let's let's talk about the courts now. Um, there, there's so much to get to, but, but I do want to mention with the courts. I know we've done a lot recently. I have a lot of good articles on this. We did Friday show. But the more conservative media on Republicans are into this euphoria that we're winning the courts and we're appointing judges, the more they're actually outlefting the left on judicial supremacism. This frantic obsession with appointing more judges and this false notion that we're winning the courts. It's because even the Democrats are now claiming to be worried about it. And like I said, this would be the perfect opportunity to make a deal and end judicial supremacism. Instead, Republicans are trying to, you know, out left them on judicial supremacism. And what, what they don't understand is that. They have false measurements because, again, it's not a math. It's an art, as I've explained many times. The fact that we are even winning the cases we're winning now demonstrates how far they have moved us into judicial hell. It's not like we're on the cusp of winning cases, rolling back bad court precedent on taking away our rights or granting phony rights and destroying our society. It's that every day the left is in the courts with numerous angles to try to get more distortions of the Constitution. And the notion that the courts ha 
hold the Constitution in their hands exclusively is so harmful. So, yes, because the last three years Trump has appointed a number of judges, we're relatively better off than we were three years ago. But on the other hand, the left is getting even more emphatic about what they're putting in the courts, and they only have to win one time. So let me give you an example. It's like, let's say I have a case, um, you know, in the courts where I say, I've said this a number of times, two members of each family have to get a sex change operation. Okay? And, you know, we think we want to foster diversity, equal protection, for, for our trans, fat, trans commu community. So everyone needs to offer up members of their family to get a sex change operation. And it goes to the courts. And, you know, the district court says, yeah, you know, I think, I think you're right. We're going to put an injunction on people's balls and make, make you cut them off. Okay, it goes to the appellate court. And then, you know, the Supreme Court's like, it, it's very sharp in the, you know, 5 4. Four justices are very, you know, sharp dissent, but but five justices say, yeah, we're going to take the injunction off. Is that like, oh, my gosh, we're winning the courts or is it like, holy hell, it's gotten this bad that it's, it's even to this point where something like this is in contention? Because the point is, they don't win in a straight line. They don't win every case all the time. But they come back and they come back. Most of the victories we're winning are defensive. It's not like we're using the judicial supremacism to strike down their stuff or to push back previous stuff. It's again, the lower courts are creating new stuff. So once in a while, the Supreme Court won't yet want to go there. Or even some of the appellate courts where the district judge did it. We're not because Trump has, you know, uh, rebalanced some of the courts. We're not going to yet go there. But. As I noted with Obergefell versus Roe, they're going to go there anyway. So, yeah, I mean, look, we had a good victory yesterday in the Ninth Circuit where they where they reversed the whatever Seattle judge on creating a Title 10 right, a right for Planned Parenthood to get Title 10 funding. Um, that that was good. And, and, and that was a ruling we, we wouldn't have gotten a few years ago uh, because see what happened what happens is now there's a 16 to 13 Democrat majority. And then some say you want to look at, at the senior judges. It's even more favorable, whereas before it was overwhelming the other way. So we actually drew a panel. This was in Bank, but in Bank in the Ninth Circuit is 11 judges, not 33 or whatever, because it's too big. So it was something like a seven to four panel. And I think all the GOP appointees did rule the right way. Now, but but what people are missing is they're exaggerating the point that somehow the Ninth Circuit is a conservative court now. No, I mean, every Democrat is a nutcase and most of the Republicans are either really bad or they're like Kavanaugh types at best. Now, I think there's a few pretty decent ones Trump appointed, but there's two of them that are a problem. I mean, one's bad on the Second Amendment. Um, two others had a lot of Democrat support. Actually, one of them had... 100% Democrat support and Republicans, like 29 Republicans voted no. It was part of one of these deals. And then you look at the George W. Bush appointees. Remember, this is when Democrats had to sign off. They had the blue slip rule. They're bad. One of them, I forget his name, was one of the was the judge that wrote the opinion against that football coach in California a couple of years back that was kneeling in prayer on the field. So what I'm just telling you is they're not looking into who these people are. Um, now, again, 
whereas before Trump, there were like there was pretty much no one good. Maybe O'Scanlan, whatever his name is, uh, was appointed by Reagan. But there were there were very few like even just. Kavanaugh types like solidly Republican, at least much less a Clarence Thomas. Now there's a few. And, you know, what what that means is if you have a new radical, crazy nuttiness. Whereas it would have continued now, it's that bleeding hopefully will stop. But I mean, as I always say, there's enough nuclear fissure, enough nuclear um, jurisprudence in these courts to destroy the country seven times over without even expanding it. Do you really think they're going to reverse Ninth Circuit precedent in all these immigration cases that's already on the docket? I'll eat my hat if I see it in a meaningful way. It's not. It's a one-way ratchet. And then people forget this is the high watermark. So maybe Trump gets reelected, but but I would be shocked if the Democrats don't come roaring back after that historically, and they'll get it even more, and then they'll they'll expand the courts. They'll. That's what I'm saying. They're not going to lose out on this. The notion that you're ever going to use judicial supremacism to your advantage is ridiculous. Because you know what? Even if you did, the Democrats just wouldn't listen. What do you think they're doing with sanctuary cities? Everything I say we should be doing with the courts, Democrats actually do. There, there's a lot to say about this. But yeah, I mean, look, you know, this is good. They, the public charge. They also beat back today. The Supreme Court beat back five to four. Um, that case uh, where they were saying they were charging a Border Patrol agent for shooting cross border into Mexico, killing a Mexican citizen, um, applying the Fifth Me- uh, Amendment extra uh, territorial uh, crazy Ninth Circuit ruling that was overturned by the Supreme Court. Um, But again, these are new, novel, crazy things. So it's interesting. A lot of people are pointing out that Sotomayor in the public charge case issued a very sharp rebuke, almost unprecedented, where she it's not just like she sharply disagreed with them legally and said this is a crazy ruling. She accused them of covering for Trump directly. Um, You know, a lot of people are talking about this, but but what I think some are missing is that it's actually it's very strategic what she's doing. She's trying to get to the non-Thomas Republican appointees. And frankly, I think she's going to succeed. She's trying to call them out on it. And I'm, I'm just guaranteeing you, like, what, what people don't understand is, again, let's say I create in the, in the court, there's a Title VII right to transgenderism. <clears throat> there's a right to open borders. There's a right to illegal immigration. Uh, There's a right for states to control federal immigration uh, power. Uh, There's a right. I mean, I I could go on and on. They're all radical cases that should never have standing, should never be in the courts, should never be allowed to have lower courts, you know, empowered to to issue these injunctions on them. So, yes, on some of them, the Supreme Court is not yet that radical and they're going to reverse them. But you know what? On all too many of them, they're not reversing them. They're kind of leaving them. And then in some cases, they're siding with them. We'll find out today with this 1324 case, you know, 8 USC 1324 violated uh, harboring, encouraging, inducing. Uh, the lower courts wanted to say that it's unconstitutional. So it's a very important case. We'll see what happens with oral arguments. 
Um, but I'm not. I, I, I'm, I'm very worried. That's the thing. We don't have a solid wall of five the way they have a solid wall of four. So yes, you will win a lot of five to four cases, but that's just because of the nature of what the lower courts are teeing up for them is just so utterly insane. And then even some of them, like on the census case, Robert sided with them. So that's what I'm saying. Each term, you're going to have that. They chip away. And then whatever we lose in the courts, it's lost forever, gone. Whereas what they lose is just like first and goal with an unlimited amount of tries. Okay, the pass was deflected. I'll try next time. I'll try next time. We'll eventually get it in. And once they get it in, boom, it's immutable. One-way ratchet. If you understand that, you understand why all these people talk about, oh, the Ninth Circuit's getting better, or this is getting better. They're not speaking to what the left is doing. Again, because the left wants, seeks, pursues, and achieves outcomes, while our side is, is okay with talking points. And it's a nice talking point. Look, you appointed something like 10 judges to the Ninth Circuit. Um, now, again, I mean, there's about three of them that are, are great, that, that are problematic. Um, among the other seven, some of them are good. Some of them, the jury's still out on. So I, I, I'm not trying to be a jerk here, but I'm just saying it's not as strong as they make it out to be. You can't bean count every GOP appointee. Um, because we've learned that that's part of the problem. A lot of them are, are really very, very problematic. Gosh, there's so many issues here. I want to get to the coronavirus. So, like most things, policy is a bigger deal than money. Most problems require policy fixes rather than monetary fixes, throwing money at it. So I just thought just kind of an interesting point. Others aren't really honing in on this. The administration is asking for about $1.2 billion in extra emergency funding for HHS, like CDC, NIH, whatever else that deals with this, <clears throat> as well as maybe a little bit the FDA and agriculture, some other departments to uh, deal with the coronavirus. People are forgetting something very important. And this speaks to the point of how the administration says one thing and then quite literally does the exact opposite. The administration in their budgets promised to dramatically cut the NIH and all these things. So officially, they were happy with much less funding. Not only didn't they stand behind that, but they increased them to record funding. In 2018, Trump's budget called for massive cuts. What he wound up signing was 43% more higher spending levels than what he proposed. The budget for the National Institutes of Health was supposed to be cut by 22%. Instead, it was increased by 8.8% in 2018. CDC was supposed to be cut by 16.9%. Instead, it was increased by 14.4%. The amount of spending on discretionary health programs. So remember... Um, the mandatory like Medicare, Medicaid, S-SHIP, that's like 800 billion or something. But these are the, the discretionary programs, you know, different things out of NIH and CDC, whatever. It grew from 56 billion to 73 billion from 2016 to 2020. Even this year, Trump's budget proposes a 10% cut from the 105 billion in discretionary HHS spending cut it back to about 95 billion 
when it's increased under Trump from like 75 or 80 or something. So you're now coming and saying you need another 1.2 billion when you yourself are saying you want to cut it by 10 billion. Well, which one is it? Here's here's what you can't do. You can't have record base spending and then say, hey, there's another emergency. They do the same thing with the hurricanes. Well, I mean, what was your base funding for? There's one thing if you have, you know, very scaled back base funding and you say, look, uh, unforeseeable natural disasters, health uh, concerns, epidemics came out. We need more funding. But again, I mean, it's like Tweedledee Tweedledum. How is this different from Bernie? And the Democrats. This is just what bothers me about this. And then again, harking back to yesterday's show, the opportunity Republicans have at a public health level to really push the pedal to the metal on drugs, gangs, criminal aliens, sanctuary cities. Thanks to Virginia Krieger, our angel mom we have on to talk about drugs from Ohio, I put together a piece from her data she gave me. It's published today, a conservative review, showing that in sanctuary counties from 2015 to 2017, the number of, overde- of overdoses increased by 74% as compared to 59% increase in the non-sanctuary counties. And if you look at the, there's nine sanctuary counties, every major area, Dayton, Cincinnati, Columbus, um, the Cleveland and, and Lake County. What's jarring is what she did is she, she took non-sanctuary counties that are the same demographics and have roughly the same number of people and compared the, the growth in drug deaths, and it was amazing. You look at Summit versus Montgomery. So Summit is a sanctuary county south of Cleveland, suburb of Cleveland, just like, um, well, no, let, let's take Claremont versus Lake. Lake is a suburb of Cleveland. Claremont is a suburb of Cincinnati. Both have about 200,000 people, similar demographics. Claremont, the number of deaths were unchanged from 2015 to 2017. In Lake, Lake, it increased by 95%. Ross versus Erie County. Ross County, non-sanctuary, it went down by 17%. Erie County went up by 41%. You look at Montgomery County, which I believe is Dayton, went up by 105%. Summit County, which is similar near Cleveland, went up only by 31%. And what's amazing is because of Narcan, the deaths did go down a little bit the last year and a half or so, but not in Franklin County, Ohio's largest county and biggest sanctuary city, that's Columbus, Deaths are still climbing, even this year, 2019, 2020. They're actually looking to construct a second morgue for drug deaths because they have so many of them. And as I I note in the piece how it's all being driven by transnational cartels and gangs, sanctuary cities. Friends, Republicans control the governorship. They control the attorney general. 
okay? They have a 61 to 38 majority in the state house, a 24 to 9 majority in the state senate. And yet every major city composing most of the state's population is under a sanctuary in Ohio. I mean, I could see all like all my colleagues have their hot takes on Bernie, but like you're having Bernie outcomes under Republicans. I'm supposed to ignore that. We could so easily change that. It doesn't have to be this way. Doesn't have to be this way. You know, this group called Conservative Hispanics, Latinos for Tennessee. It's a pro jailbreak, pro refugee outlet in Tennessee. They tweeted out yesterday the House just unanimously passed a bill by William Lamberth on behalf of Governor Bill Lee to eliminate the costly state fee for someone to expunge their records for certain crimes after years without reoffending. Again, there's tons of loopholes that and they make it sound nice. Oh, these are the greatest people around. It's not true. It's always much more expensive than that. And again, it's all about expunging records because notice, see, they're not stupid. They know about repeat offenders. So now they want to say, well, look, we're going to slow down the velocity of sentencing by just expunging it. No effort to deal with the thousands upon thousands of Tennesseans. I've written about victims of crime in Tennessee. Nobody's locked up anymore there. No, no concern about that. Unanimous. Republicans have like a three to one majority in the, in the House there. Every Republican votes for it. Folks, what we're seeing with Bernie Sanders is nothing but the Overton window moving inexorably to the left. Okay? The, he's just allowing them to move to the left and, 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 and just drag race. We're going to compete with them to see how well we are in global warming, how many criminals we're going to release, how many visas we're going to expand. Is this the best we can do? That is my question for you. I don't want to hear this crap, Daniel. It's better than the Democrats. That, that's a straw man. We don't have to take this. You see from last week, a little bit of influence, a handful of people, one person in my case, raising awareness to what, what is going on in Republican politics, and you could really amp up the pressure, and you could get better results. It doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to accept this. I just want to close with one thought, and I know I've really just ran the gambit here. There's, there's a lot of things going on. Um, Phil Haney, friend of mine, heartbreaking. He was found shot in the chest in San Francisco. Um, if you remember, he was the whistleblower on DHS that basically he said they had an entire database of connecting the dots of different Islamic terrorists and networks that could have vetted out the San Bernardino terrorist. And it was a completely expunged. He was trying to get back into DHS. He was a great guy. He was a brilliant guy. Um... I, he wrote the book, See Something, Say Nothing. I remember the first time I met him, and it was almost spooky because he, he, he peered into my soul. He literally understood my background. Just He lo looked at me, and he totally got me. And I said to myself, wow, that, that's, that's a good counterterrorism analyst. Um, you could Google my name and, and Phil Haney. You could see the show we did with him a couple of years ago. Um, I really feel bad. He asked to come on the show and I forgot last year. 
and now he's dead. Somebody rushed to the media, and it looks awful, awfully suspicious that this was a suicide. None of us were buying it. And I know people who knew him a lot better than I do, and they weren't buying it. And now the sheriff there is walking it back and saying, whoa, wait, wait a minute, that, that's misinformation. We never said that, and we're actually calling in the FBI. Folks, this really doesn't look good. I don't know who did it. I don't know what it was. I can only speculate. But I know it was not a suicide. And that should really scare us all. That is really, really scary. So this is something we are definitely going to focus on. Again, let's try to build this network. I'll get with some of you on the Facebook stuff. Tweet me at Arm Conservative. Subscribe at iTunes. Email me at dharowitz at blazemedia.com. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. And thank you for listening.